Welcome to Way Family Church. You're listening to our sermon podcast. Way Family Church is a new church plant in Tucson, Arizona. We welcome you to join us every Sunday morning at 1030 for worship, the word, and fellowship. If you'd like more information, visit us online at wayfamily.church. Amen. Well, today I'm going to keep it very brief, and I'm going to do my best to keep it very brief. I totally am aware that sometimes I go long. (laughs) Um, But today is the very last week we will be in Esther. We will close it today, and then we have a very special moment for all of us thereafter. We're going to look into Purim, this festival that the Jews established to remember the time of Esther and Mordecai, the time where the Lord spared God's people from uh, Haman, the wicked enemy of the Jews. I'd like to open up with a word of prayer today. Father, thank you for this beautiful time where we can come into your word, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for uh, everything that we have learned from it. It's been a true blessing to just look deeper into your sovereignty, into your providence, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We ask that you would continue to speak to us today. That this, These words, that this story, that this insight would not go void in our lives, but it would carry on each and every day through us, Father. We would learn to trust you, that we would learn to lean on you, regardless of the trials in this life. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen and amen. Now, there are certain things in life that you'll never forget, yes? There are certain things in life that you shouldn't forget. In fact, there are moments in life that you shouldn't forget because they're special, they're important, they're full of meaning, they're full of heart. Like, for example, your wedding anniversary. If you're married, you shouldn't forget that date, okay? That's an important day. Uh, Gentlemen, your wife's birthday, don't forget it. That's an important date. Um, Your kids' birthdays are also important. One of the reasons why I love my children's birthdays is because it takes me back to when they were really tiny. And I remember those days, you know, I had the blessing of being present for our youngest daughter's birth, and it was in our bedroom. She was born in our bedroom. And I will never forget that. So every birthday, I will remember that moment, the moment that the Lord has brought her into the world. I'll just never forget that. It was, it was crazy. <laughs> Um, graduation days, promotions, whatever it may be, there are certain days that we should just remember. Uh, maybe you know the day that you were saved. For me, my salvation was more of a progression, right? So I don't know exactly when the Lord saved me, but some of you guys do. Some of you guys know exactly when it happened. That's an important day. That's something to never forget. And so whatever it is, whatever these moments are, They're worth remembering, and it's worth doing something to make sure that we never forget. Now, God's faithfulness and grace towards his people, as we've seen in the book of Esther, is something they should never forget. God's grace and faithfulness, as we've seen, not just in the book of Esther, but throughout the entirety of the description, specifically in the Old Testament, and then the fulfillment in the New, is something we should never forget. In fact, God has called us to remember much of what he's done And I'll tell you what, me personally, I am tremendously grateful for those memorials that he has called us to. For example, the celebration of the Passover is a memorial. 
The whole feast, the whole thing about it is for the purpose of remembering that God delivered his people from Egypt. Never forget, the Ark of the Covenant is actually also a memorial. It is a memorial that the Lord was with them. And in it, there were certain items to remember the power and the majesty of God as he saw his people, not just out of Egypt, but through the desert as well. And as they entered the promised land and all of the victories that they had against their enemies. Remember the mighty works of God. It's important. The 12 stones of Joshua. Do you guys remember that story? As you're getting ready to enter into the promised land, the, the Lord parts the, the river, the Jordan River, so that they can walk and cross through it on dry ground. And he says, instead of the 12 stones, that they would remember what I have done, that I have delivered you from your oppressors into a promised land. The Lord's Supper is also a memorial. That is uh, an ordinance that we receive from Christ himself. Do this in remembrance of me. When we celebrate Good Friday as a congregation, that's a memorial of the sacrifice that the Lord did for us on the cross. And then Easter Sunday is a memorial that he didn't stay under the grips of death, but he rose again on the third day, just as he said he would. All of these things and so much more, these are just a few examples of why it's important to remember certain things. The Lord's faithfulness is strong towards his people. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Do not forget, because sometimes life gets in the way. Sometimes we get sideswiped and we forget and we say, where are you, Lord? Is that wrong for us to, to feel that way? No. But at the same time, we have memorials. We have something to look to and say, ah, he is here. He's working. He's doing something. He's already delivered me from much. I can trust him to continue to do and fulfill and complete the work that he's doing in me. You see that? And so as we look into these final scenes, we're going to be looking at two chapters today, and I'm going to do more of a flyover of these chapters. Therefore, I highly encourage you to take the time and read these for yourself. There are a lot of details here that I'm not going to cover today, but I want you to do it, okay? But as we look into these final scenes in the book of Esther, we will continue to see how the Lord is turning the tables against his or their enemies, the enemies of this people. And we'll continue to see how he's also uh, turned a plan for destruction into a plan for salvation and not just salvation, but also relief, a blessing. And as a result, you'll see of this tremendous victory that God's people rejoice and they seek to remember what the Lord had done for them now and forevermore. This is what it's all about. Never forget. That's today's sermon title, Never Forget. Now, I'd like to share with you five things that we should never forget as we conclude our sermon series here in the book of Esther. And these are five things that I gather based out of chapter 9 and 10 as we wrap this up. Five things that we should never forget. Never forget that our God is awesome and only he is awesome, right? Never forget that he's sovereign, he's in control, and he's moving, and he's grooving, right? And when he shows up, he shows off in such beautiful ways. Never forget that he's present and always with us. That's kind of an overarching thing, right? But we should also never forget that as we stand in the midst of trouble, God is working. God has not forgotten you. God is moving and fighting the battle for you. Now, I'm going to just kind of tell you what chapter 9 and 10 is about. The Jews destroy their enemies. The day finally arrives. And just as you imagined, 
they are able to be victorious against those who hated them. That date finally arrived, the date that Haman, remember he cast Pur, he cast lots to determine the day. It was March 7th and 8th. The day finally came. And so it's the moment of suspense, what's going to happen. The Lord delivers Israel, the Jewish people, from their enemies. And not just that, he brings justice and judgment to the enemies. And so Haman's family, remember those 10 sons he used to boast about? They were also put on those gallows. They were also condemned to death. And it says that just in Susa the citadel, which is the capital city of Persia where Xerxes lived, 500 people, 500 enemies of the Jews were killed. A total of 75,000 enemies of the Jews were killed. And still, the Lord blesses Esther because Xerxes says, hey, this is what's happened. Many of my subjects have died. What is your wish? What more do you want? Whatever you want, it shall be granted to you. So we continue to see the Lord's faithfulness, the Lord's favor over his people. And, and sure enough, they come out victorious and they celebrate. And Mordecai is known to be an honorable leader in Persia. Wow, that's not the way the story started. This is truly one of those stories you would imagine to be a princess story. You know, there was this beautiful princess and she was a, a little, uh, a, a, what do you, like a servant girl. And then she became princess and then she lived happily ever after. Like, this is legit a princess story. This is great. And so we see a wonderful conclusion. But as we go into, again, a flyover of chapter 9 and 10, there are five things, five things we should never forget. The first thing is never forget that the battle belongs to the Lord. We see it here, and we'll see it, and it's good for you to know it for your personal life. The battle that you're in right now, the battle that we have been put on, belongs to the Lord. It is not up to you to fight it. It is the Lord's fight. Amen? Verse 1 through 5, we read in chapter 9, in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, again, March 7th and 8th, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jewish gathered in their cities throughout, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. Look at this. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all of the providence. Says, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Mordecai could have never set himself up for this. You remember how forgotten he was initially? But in due time, the Lord set him up in a position where now he's great and people fear him, and he's of Jewish descent, which means he is a worshiper of God Almighty. And again, verse 2 says, And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all people. You know what this, this means? Certain situations are unavoidable. There are certain trials we have to walk through. There are certain moments of hardship that we must just go through. But James chapter 1, verse 2 tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials are not a death sentence. 
They are opportunities for us to see the mighty hand of God move in our lives. Because the battle is not ours, it belongs to him. He is the one who's fighting our battles. Remember, Haman had cast pur, that is to cast lots, all right, to determine when the Jews would die, to determine the day of their destruction. Now that day finally arrived. It was in the month of Adar. Now let me show you a quick little map. Uh, not map, calendar. This is what the Jewish calendar looks like. So we know exactly when this is. Adar, the late Adar falls right there, February and March. And so today we celebrate the remembrance of this event in March. So we're a little ahead of the game, okay? We're not late, we're ahead of the game. So today we're going to celebrate what the Lord has done, but it's typically celebrated in the month of March. Got it? Okay, so the day arrived, and unlike the original plan, the original plan was that the Jews would be destroyed, but now the Jews are able and ready to fight back, and you may think, this is where the battle begins. No, this is where the battle ends. The battle started a long time ago. Because, see, it wasn't, it wasn't Mordecai and Esther who were fighting. They were just being positioned with purpose. God was fighting the battle. He was constantly present and aware of everything that was going on. God had been fighting the battle from the very start, and he's already done everything that no one else could do because the battle belongs to the Lord. Romans 8, 31 through 33 tells us, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is fighting for us. And if God is fighting for us, nothing can stand against us. It's kind of like uh, that scene in The Lion King. Man, I, I've noticed I used Lion King a lot for, for, for kind of imagery because uh, I just love that movie, I suppose. There's a little scene where little Simba is faced with the hyenas in the elephant graveyard, and he has his little cute little roar. And then all of a sudden, he gives it all he's got, and this big lion roar comes up, and it just really messes the hyenas up because his dad was right behind them, ready to fight that battle for him. That is how the Lord you know, backs us up. And again, let me tell you this. He's not backing you up because your purpose is greater than his. He's backing you up because his promise is over you. And when we live according to his will and his way, when we're humbled before him, when we, when we serve our God Almighty, there's nothing that can stand against us because he is for us in that regard. You see that? God is who fights our battle. Now, if we look, if we notice in, in verse 3 here of chapter 9, it says that all the satraps and the governors and royal agents helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen over them. Notice this is power. This is authority. The enemies of the Jews never imagined that going against God's people would be an impossible task. The enemies were looking forward to this day. And now all of a sudden, the tables have turned against them. And the power of Persia is, is protecting the Jews. It's on the side of the Jews. See, the Lord was with Mordecai and the world knew it. The world also knew from stories past, from memorials that they had established in the past, and from celebrations and festivals that God's faithfulness and God's um, power and might was with his people, which means that he could not be beat. See, people knew, oh, if God is with them, we can't, we can't beat them. There was a lot of memorials that had been set up prior to this time. Remember Haman's wife, Zeresh? 
She had said to them about Mordecai, she had said to Haman about Mordecai in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 13, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish people, that means a worshiper of Yahweh, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. They knew it. If God is for you, who could be against you? No one. In other words, no one, no one can be victorious over the Lord. It's impossible. God is the one who fights the battle. We've seen this over and over. Never forget, the battle belongs to the Lord. Okay? The second thing I'd like to share with you, never forget that victory goes hand in hand with righteousness. Victory goes hand in hand with righteousness. Now, I think this is super great and super important. Verse 5 tells us that the Jewish, or the Jews, excuse me, struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. Verse 10 says, but they laid no hands on the plunder. And so the moment came, they had total permission. The, the Jews could have plundered their enemies because they had granted that permission. We can see that in chapter 8, verse 11. They said, anything that was decreed against you, you can do against them. But they did not plunder their enemies. The primary aim here was life. It wasn't loot. It wasn't to fill their pockets. It was to be able to stand against their enemies, and that's it, to live. Now, one of Haman's primary aims was loot. His primary aim was self-exaltation, to fill the treasuries, to become a little bit more wealthy with this, and to get rid of his enemy. But here's the point. This detail is mentioned three times in this chapter. It's mentioned in verse 10, it's mentioned in verse 15, and it's mentioned in verse 16. The end of verse 16 says, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Folks, here's, here's what I think we need to get from this. Victory goes hand in hand with righteousness. We cannot say that we are victorious if we're quote-unquote winning, if we're doing it by evil means, okay? So you can't really say or you shouldn't celebrate an A-plus when the way that you got that A-plus was because you copied off of someone else. That's not victory. There's a difference between quote-unquote winning and victory. Victory goes hand-in-hand with righteousness. Victory is when we humble ourselves before the Lord and we do things according to his ways, according to his will, and not in the ways that the evil one would work. That is not winning. That's losing. Because at the end of the day, the Lord will not be mocked. He knows those who work according to his wills and ways and are humble before him. And he knows those who are wicked and who oppose him. The Lord opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, Victory goes hand in hand with righteousness. Remember in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives a parable of the wicked servant. He, he's forgiven of all his debt, and instead of being forgiven himself of others, he goes and he pressures others who owe him. And then the master is really angry about what he does. That's, that's not a righteous, that's not a win there. Righteousness is something where you, you do the right thing. You do the right thing, even if it costs you. Like Mordecai did the right thing throughout the whole time. And there was times where he didn't see that reward or that recognition right away. But because he was a righteous man, the Lord blessed him. And we see that uh, um, just greatly here in this, in this passage. Now, again, victory is when righteousness triumphs. That's true victory. Romans 12, 17 tells us this, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
True victory is triumph over evil through righteous means. That's true victory. Never forget the third thing, that God's victory comes with a blessing. Look at verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, again, March 7, and on the 14th day, March 8, and they rested, and they made a day of feasting and gladness. Look at these, this language. Is, these are words of relief. These are now words of rest. This is now a season of peace and rest and assurance. What a blessing. What a true blessing because, you see, the people of God could have been spared and then that's it. Just like us, Jesus Christ could have saved us and that would have been fine. We could have just not been guilty of our sin and that would have been enough. But instead, he makes us heirs of the kingdom of God. Instead, there's a blessing that comes from that. In place, he goes and prepares a place for you. Like, that's amazing. That's a blessing. That's grace. That's mercy. That's kindness. And so, Never forget that victory comes with a blessing. God is looking out for us all the time. He has established a strong advocate for us, seated at the right hand of the king, just like he did with Queen Esther. He established a strong advocate there. But here's the thing, though. Christ, unlike Esther, but in Christ, we have relief from our enemies and rest from our striving and the joy that we will experience today will be complete one day when we are with him because Esther brought relief for that moment, but Christ brings it for eternity. Do you see that? What a glorious day it'll be when we are forever liberated from our fears, from our anxieties. Can I get an amen for that? It wouldn't be nice to just be rid of all that and all the work that we try to put into our sanctification. What a beautiful blessing it'll be to be able to just be done with that. And we won't have to think of any of that anymore. Instead, we rest and we rejoice. The fourth thing that we should never forget is the goodness of God. Now, in verses 20 through 32, if you notice here, there's a feast of Purim that is inaugurated, the feast of Purim. Why is it called Purim? That's the way you say it. It's Purim. Verse 24, for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. Verse 26, therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Got it? Purim was established as a memorial to remember what the Lord had done for his people through Esther and Mordecai. And it was celebrated in this way. Look at verse 22. By feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. This is the exact opposite of plundering. Purim is about blessing. Purim is about giving. Purim is about just exercising a a, a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving, not about plundering others. Purim is still observed today in the Jewish community. And although not instituted by the Lord, this isn't a festival or memorial that was instituted directly by the Lord like communion was or the Passover was. This is a response of God's people to his great, to, to his great power and, and the deliverance that they experienced. They were filled with gratitude for what the Lord had done. And we should too also have ways and means to remember the wonderful things that the Lord has done and never forget that he is awesome. This is an Ebenezer. An Ebe what? A commemoration of divine assistance. That's what that means. It is um, a way to remember once again that the Lord has delivered us. He's done something good. 
and we should celebrate the goodness of God. So therefore, never forget the goodness of God. Got it? The fifth and final thing, never forget honor's reward. If you look at chapter 10, check it out. It says, King Ahasuerus imposed the tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. You know, that's the last thing we read about King Xerxes. He imposed the tax. <laughs> Did you know that not too long after he was actually killed and Artaxerxes takes the throne thereafter? And so this, this book doesn't really exalt Xerxes, who was the highest power in the moment. It's not about that. It, there's, an, there's a reward that comes here from being honorable, though. And look, and all of the acts of his power might, and the full account of this high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all of his people. Mordecai was an honorable man. And because he was honorable and because he feared the Lord above anything else, the Lord blessed him in mighty ways. There's a reward that comes from that. You know, I just can't wait for the day where we're face to face with our God and we can see a reward. Whatever it may be, it's going to be awesome. You know, like I've heard some people say, man, if I could just be a street sweeper up in heaven, I'd be happy with that. Amen to that. It's going to be awesome. There's a reward that comes from being humble, from being uh, courteous, from being kind, from being faithful, from being just constant with the Lord. Amen. Now, Esther and Mordecai loved their people, but Mordecai and Esther weren't the saviors. Yes, they were people of high positions. They were in command uh, to a certain degree. They were certainly significant, but they still served under a pagan king. They still did. Neither Esther nor Mordecai were the ultimate liberators of God's people. The ultimate liberators of God's people was still to come. The ultimate liberator of God's people is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His name is Jesus Christ. And then he comes. 400 years later, a baby is born. Wow, humble beginnings. And Jesus Christ liberates us, not just now, but for eternity to come. Amen? So let me leave you with your final takeaway from the book of Esther. In the ultimate battle for deliverance, Christ alone has achieved victory. Never forget. Christ is who brings eternal and true liberation. Never forget. If he's able to do this and so much more, as we've seen through the pages of this book, he's able to do things that you can't even imagine in your life. Never forget. Amen? Now, this is, this is Purim. This is how the Jews celebrate Purim today. And so we're going to kind of do a mini version of it, okay? This is a way for us to remember what the Lord has done. What they do is there's a reading of the book of Esther. And so today I've asked my wife, Sandy, to share in the reading of the book of Esther. But don't worry, we're not going to read it out of this book. We're gonna, we have a kid's storybook that we're going to read, okay? Now, as the book of Esther is being read, the children will make noise to blot out the name of Haman, so, anytime you hear Haman's name, I want you guys to go, boo! Make some noise. We don't want to hear that name because Haman is bad news. You guys got it? Now, without further ado, let us begin. The king had been humiliated by his wife, 
As punishment, he took the crown from Vashti and told her she would no longer be queen. He then requested that all women who were eligible to replace her come to the palace at once. King Ahasuerus had put his servant Haggai in charge of finding the most exquisite women in the land, and it was hard to imagine someone more beautiful than Esther. Along with several, several other women, Esther was chosen from the crowd to be brought into the palace where they would spend a year preparing to meet the king. Esther was Haggai's favorite, no question. He gave her the best of everything, makeup, food, and seven women to take care of her every need. But for all he knew about her, there was one thing he didn't. She was a Jew. Her cousin Mordecai said, do not tell them anything about it. Because so many people in Persia despised Jews, it would compromise her chances of being queen. So she obeyed him and didn't say a word. She also listened to everything Haggai told her to do in order to please the king, never swaying from his advice. When the time finally came for her to be brought into the king's chambers, she walked slowly to him, her elegant dress perfectly fitted and her eyes warm with kindness. He was overcome by her and he loved her more than anyone else. Esther bowed her head for him to place her crown and she became the queen of Persia. One day after that, Mordecai <laughs> was standing outside the palace gates and he heard two of the king's servants discussing how they were going to kill the king. He immediately ran to Esther to tell her and she warned the king before they succeeded. King Ahasuerus wrote down the name of the man who had saved his life so that he could thank him. But as time passed, the king forgot. The king's assistant was a man named Haman. <laughs> who was obsessed with power. In fact, Haman forced the people to bow down to him as if he were a god. They obeyed him, of course, because they didn't want to get uh, in trouble with the king. Well, all but one man obeyed him. Mordecai, a devout Jew, refused to bow to any god other than the true god. When all the other people knelt down to Haman, Mordecai, stood tall on his feet. This made Haman <laughs> furious, and he rushed into the palace with a plan to kill the Jews, all of the Jews. Later, when Esther received a message from Mordecai, he, he told her that Haman had announced his evil plan, and he urged her to help. You have to go to the king, he begged. Don't let them kill us. Esther knew that she was not allowed to go to the king's chambers unless he requested her there. Going to him without an invitation was very dangerous and the king could have her killed because of it. Mordecai, she responded. You know what could happen to me. Esther realized she was going to have to risk her life to save her people. Esther, you are our only hope. What if you were chosen by God for such a time as this, Mordecai asked. The crown on her head may have been placed by human hands, but could it be that all along God had known she would be here at this very moment? Yes, she whispered, I will go. If I die, I die. She told Mordecai to have all the Jews pray for her and she set out to save her people. It was a long, long walk to the king's chamber and with every step, she had to remind herself to be courageous. She knew when the king saw her, one of two things would happen. 
Either he would lift his golden scepter for her to touch, accepting her in his presence, or he would not. If his scepter wasn't raised, she would be put to death. Her hands shook as she watched the grand doors open, knowing this could be the end of her life. The king looked up and saw her walking slowly, just as she had the first time she met him. When she reached his throne, she bowed, waiting for her fate to be decided. As soon as she did, the king raised his scepter for her to touch, giving her the freedom to speak. Her heart raced as she rested her fingers on the tip and invited the king and Haman to a special dinner, nodding gratefully when he accepted. Haman was still reeling over the obstinate Mordecai. And he decided to have gallows made in order to hang Mordecai the next day. But that night, the king couldn't sleep. He asked for his journals to be brought in, and he happened to go back to the page about the man who saved his life. He realized the man had never been rewarded, so he called his advisors to discuss it. What do you think I should do for the man who was most loyal to me, he asked. Haman was sure. Haman was sure the king was talking about him, and he excitedly planned out his own reward. I would dress him like a hero dress him in royal robes, parade him around on a horse so everyone can cheer for him and honor his greatness, Haman said. He beamed at the king, waiting for his reward. Perfect, the king answered. Do this for Mordecai. The Jew who has saved my life. <gasps> Mordecai? Haman's blood ran cold. Dinner is served, called one of the servants. Haman followed the king into the banquet room where Esther was waiting. The following night, they had dinner again. The king offered Esther whatever she wished, and her words shocked the king. My lord, please rescue me from certain death. I am, she paused to compose herself. This was it. I am a Jew, sir. <gasps> And an order has been sent out to have all of my people killed. She took a breath. If this pleases you, will you call off the orders to protect us? Nobody would threaten the king's wife. Ahasuerus demanded to know who made this decree. This wicked man, she answered, her delicate finger pointing to his assistant, Haman. <laughs> and so, instead of being treated to the people's praise, Haman was sent to the gallows he had built to kill Mordecai. Mordecai, on the other hand, was set on a horse and led around the town in the finest clothes money could buy. Mordecai would become the king's new assistant and forevermore be revered as the man who stepped up to save his people after refusing to bow to anyone but God. And Esther, beautiful Esther, the woman God used to protect his people, she risked her life to make his name and his people great. And when the golden scepter was raised to offer her a voice, she knew the words of Mordecai were true. Indeed, she had been chosen for a moment such as this.